You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing that we've all become more acutely aware of during the pandemic is the act of breathing. The coronavirus causes respiratory illness, of course, and it's also transmitted through the air. So we think about our breathing and everyone else's. And check this out. Step outside, lower your mask long enough to take in a breath, and you may notice that it's, well, fresher than usual. Air pollution is dropped while we and our cars shelter at home. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, surprises about how human activity is changing the air. Some components have gone away, while new ones have been added. And although we do it all day long, it turns out that most of us aren't breathing properly. We'll describe the recent evolutionary reasons for this and how you can get the most out of every breath. It's something in the air. When environmental biogeochemist Janice Brainy set out to examine the samples she'd collected for a research project, she was surprised at what she discovered. She had planned to study dust. Our study was designed to try to understand how dust moves through the atmosphere and where it might be coming from and the implications to receiving aquatic ecosystems. And that required her to take a close look. Because I was very interested in the composition of dust, I started looking at dust under their microscope. But what Dr. Brainy saw through her eyepiece would come to change the focus of her research. I started to look at the dust under the microscope, and that's when I started to see very bright pieces of plastic. Little brightly colored fibers, bright blue, bright green, bright pink, as well as these little tiny fragments of particles in all varieties of colors of the rainbow. And what really struck me were the little microbeads, as small as four microns in diameter. And the more that I looked at my samples, the more I realized they were in every single sample. And then I realized that I'm looking at plastic deposition. There in the dust, tucked among bits of biology like fragments of insects and spores and mineral particles, were tiny synthetic fibers and microbeads. A stunning photo of one of her slides is on our website at bigpicturescience.org. Dr. Brainy ruled out laboratory contamination, and then she began a new study to quantify the amount of tiny plastic raining from the sky. Plastic pollution, regrettably, is not new. I mean, it litters our streets, it floats in patches in the Pacific, it washes down streams, it mixes with soils. Some of this plastic is, as she said, only a few microns across. A micron, of course, is a millionth of a meter, which means that that plastic is about the size of a red blood cell. We even ingest microplastic. I mean, there was a recent study that revealed that we kind of unwittingly eat 50,000 pieces of microplastic a year, and we inhale another 50,000. 
The health effect of ingesting all this microplastic is not clear, but surely it can't be good. While it's been known that microplastic can be swept up high into the atmosphere, Dr. Brainy's results were the first to identify the sources of these microplastics and how they move through the air, including their freewheeling ride on the jet stream. She and her team set up 11 monitoring sites at remote locations in the American Southwest, mostly parks and protected areas, so researchers could get a reading on background deposition, that is, the usual quantity of particles that drift around. What she's trying to get at is, where is this stuff coming from, and how much of it is there? After counting plastic deposition rates in hundreds of samples, the average particle deposition rate or plastic deposition rate was just over 130 plastics per meter square per day. And we calculated that over a thousand tons are being deposited every single year into these protected areas. And that's our lowest estimate. A thousand tons of plastics. One thousand tons, yes. Janice, is, is the world just being covered in microplastic? It appears that way, yes. I don't believe that based on the evidence that we found in these remote regions and the evidence we found for long-range transport, that there would be any surface of the earth that would be protected from plastic deposition at this point. It seems unlikely. Where did you find the most plastic of those 11 sites? At Rocky Mountain National Park. It's very close to the Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins area, so it's less than 50 miles from a major urban center. We also found that plastic deposition uh, was positively correlated to elevation, so we saw much higher plastic deposition rates at higher elevation sites, and Rocky Mountain National Park is one of the higher elevation sites. Were you startled by your findings? Yes. I hadn't anticipated seeing plastics in, in these samples, and I was startled at every juncture of this project, so in initially observing them, and then when I started to focus all of my attention on plastics and counting and, and determining deposition rates, I was surprised. Um, finding evidence for long-range transport was also surprising. There hasn't been an aspect of this project that didn't surprise me, um, both scientifically and as a human. So let's talk about how they get up into the atmosphere. But first, define our terms. California is the first state to create a definition of microplastics. And the state is doing this because it, it wants to begin investigating um, the possible health consequences of these microplastics in water. So they came up with a, a definition that is active as of July 1st, 2020. It's, it's quite recent. And this is five millimeters. That's what a microplastic is. And I, I was trying to think about how, how to think about this in my mind. And I looked at a penny and five millimeters just about covers the face of Abraham Lincoln on a penny. Although you found some bits that were a little bit smaller than that, right? Correct. So the, the definition that's been used in the literature is smaller than five millimeters, which some of us would like to call milliplastics instead of microplastics. The size ranges we found for particles were between four microns and about 100 microns. Well, let's talk about the source of the plastics and how they travel. Uh, were you able to determine the, the source of these various fibers and these microbeads? We found that most fibers were associated with clothing, so nylon, polyester, as well as technical clothing like polypropylene or PTFE, and various coatings that you might find for waterproofing of clothing. The particles were harder to identify what their initial source might have been because they were a variety of very commonly used plastics. But we did find that about 30% of our particles were brightly colored microbeads. And these are primary plastics, so they're um, molded in that size. They're not from the fragmentation of larger plastics. And we've he all heard a lot about microbeads in cosmetics, but these seem to be much smaller than what's typically used in cosmetics. And uh, manufacturers of these microbeads cite a variety of different uh, industrial uses, including coatings and paints. Um, but it's also used a lot in uh, medical and science for things like calibrating instruments. So a lot of these microbeads fluoresce, and so they can be used to track different biological processes or instrumentation. 
So these were a lot harder for us to identify because they were smaller than 20 microns in size, which is the um, limit on the aperture for the instrument we were using. How far have some of these pieces of plastic and these little microfibers traveled? Well, we were able to show that some are coming from nearby, nearby cities, but uh, many are coming from much further away, uh, potentially thousands of kilometers cross-continental. Didn't you also look at patterns of how plastics might be traveling through the jet stream? Of course, um, the jet stream being these atmospheric currents that circle the globe. Are the plastics traveling around the world, going from one country to the other? Yeah, they are potentially traveling very far. Our dry deposition data suggested that the particles that fell out of the sky under dry conditions were moving around the atmosphere at higher altitudes in the atmosphere and were influenced by these broad-scale climate patterns like the location of the jet stream. And we're able to show that if an air mass passed through population centers, it tended to have greater plastic deposition rates at our site. But will you take us through how these plastics become micro? What kind of processes work on plastic to grind them into these tiny little bits, and then how they become airborne and then finally rain out of the sky? Um, so a variety of different mechanical processes in the environment could break down um, larger pieces of plastics into smaller fragments. Wave activity in the marine environment, for example. Also, UV radiation tends to make plastics more brittle. And so instead of biodegrading, they they tend to fragment into smaller and smaller particles through abrasion and through um, UV radiation. So if we were to imagine some of these microplastics in the water or perhaps on the ground or perhaps in a landfill, something like that, how do they get into the air? Microplastics are likely getting into the air through multiple different mechanisms. There are some potential direct emissions to the atmosphere from clothes dryers or paints applied through aerosol sprays, but these may not get emitted high enough into the atmosphere at the point of application in order to be transported really far. So there needs to be some mechanism to bring the microplastics high enough into the atmosphere where long-range transport can occur. So one potential mechanism is through the erosion of soils that already contain microplastics, similar to how dust ends up in the atmosphere. And we do see some evidence for this in our rain samples, where if a sample contained a lot of dust, it also contained a lot of microplastics. Um, whereas if the sample did not contain dust and did not pass through an urban center, it tended to, to have uh, fewer microplastics. Another important mechanism is from cars driving on roads. If you've ever seen a car driving down a dirty road, you know a trail of dust is emitted high into the atmosphere in its wake. So we believe the same thing can happen with microplastics on, that are on the road surface or part of cars or even part of the roads themselves. If they're airborne, as your study suggests, uh, could we be breathing in these plastics? Yes, we are breathing in plastic. The size ranges in our samples that we observed are within the range considered respirable, so they can end up trapped in your upper airways and um, potentially expelled, but also can get lodged into your lung tissue. Um, and there has been evidence of microplastic fibers lodged in lung tissue. Janice, this is obviously concerning, but we'd like to hear from you what concerns you about this mass distribution of microplastic. What concerns me most at this point is how little we know about the implications of microplastics everywhere, both for human and ecological health. Um, for example, we don't know what the implications are for the physical environment. Um, do they, for example, act as cloud condensation nuclei? We know they influence soils, but we don't know exactly how and to what extent and what are the implications. I'm also concerned about whether or not we can come together as a global community to try and mitigate this problem. I hope that we can. Janice Brainy, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you for having me. Janice Brainy is an environmental biogeochemist at Utah State University.
At least some news about air quality is looking up. The pandemic might not be letting up, but air pollution is. And, you know, I think that gives people an impression of, you know, what really the reduction on these emissions can do, you know, to air quality. And, and that maybe hopefully will be an inspiration for future. Next, a global experiment in what drifts above our heads. Plus, have scientists created a mask that doesn't just block, but actually kills coronavirus? It's something in the air on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Blue skies smiling at me. Nothing but blue skies do I see. It's been, in some cases quite literally, a ray of sunshine during the pandemic. While our cars stay parked, some of the world's most polluted cities are enjoying rare views. So you can imagine maybe it is the first time in a lot of people's lives to see such, you know, clean sky or clear blue sky. Later in the show, we'll explore the science of breathing so you can take full advantage of the newly scrubbed air. But now, a look at how the pandemic pause on some human activity is changing our understanding about atmospheric chemistry. First, a chemistry lesson. Or is it a cooking lesson? So the atmosphere, you can think of it as a big soup. There are different ingredients in the soup, and you can think of different pollutants. You can have nitrogen oxide, you can have ozone, you can have particulate matter. So that smog that you see in maybe Los Angeles a lot of the times is, you know, this uh, mixture of these um, different pollutants. But we abruptly stopped driving our cars when the pandemic hit. So the one component that has seen a large decrease is nitrogen oxides from cars or from trucks. And particularly matter is um, more difficult to decide if it is actually changing or decreasing with the pandemic because the chemistry that leads to these uh, particle formation is very different, you know, in different parts of the country. What Georgia Tech atmospheric scientist and chemical engineer Sally Ng and her colleagues discovered is that the pandemic has produced a grand experiment in global atmospheric chemistry, one that they never could have set up, even with unlimited grant funding. For a quick take on the results, compare pre- and post-pandemic photos of places like Beijing and New Delhi. Yeah, like so in places like I would say India or China, actually, I think the effect of this uh, shutdown on the air quality is easier to visualize, right? Because a lot of those places are already very polluted, you know, to, to start with. And you can see this before and after, you know, like a very smoggy photo and a very clear photo. And then you can clearly see the reductions even just, you know, with your eyes without, you know, doing the measurements. The question is that in, in a lot of other places, then what you're trying to understand is why and how the particulate matter or the ozone will change. Now, I understand that when the shutdown started, you rushed back to install an air monitor on the roof of uh, your office building there. Why was it so critical to get a reading during the pandemic? I mean, what was it that you were trying to learn right away? Yeah, so we want to learn how the, like you can think of like, you know, the atmosphere has a lot of different pollutants, right? And with the lockdown, then you selectively reduce some pollutants, but not the other pollutants. So we want to really collect this change and then maybe like continue lockdown and then slowly reopening, then you can see those emissions, you know, come back. This is a really a, a big scale experiment to see how the impact of one pollutant will affect, you know, the overall, you know, pollutant mix. All right, so the, the air is missing some components. Tell us a little bit about the atmospheric chemistry that's changed and what those various components do. Well, the main change is the decrease in the nitrogen oxide level. So nitrogen oxide is a compound that is emitted by you know, cars and you know trucks. And the question is that now you see this big decrease in nitrogen oxide, what would happen to ozone and particulate matter? 
right? So for atmospheric chemistry, we learn in class is that if you decrease nitrogen oxide, in some places, your ozone will increase. In some places, your ozone will decrease, right? So now this experiment allow us to kind of evaluate the type of chemistry in different parts of the country. And the particulate matter, these are tiny particles in the air, right? Like we are breathing in them when we are talking to each other. Some of these particles are emitted as particles. So if you drive behind a diesel truck, you see those black soot particles coming at you, right? So those particles are emitted directly as particles. But maybe a lot of people um, do not know is that a lot of the particles that we are breathing are actually not particles to start with. They are gas phase, you know, compounds to start with, and then they go through this complex chemistry in the atmosphere, and at the end they form a particle. So those are the particles that are more difficult to um, control, and this experiment will allow us to see how, you know, reduction in these NOx, uh, nitrogen oxides will affect you know, the formation of these particles that we are breathing in, in the atmosphere. You mentioned that when the nitrogen oxide decreases, because there are just fewer tailpipe emissions, that the ozone, at least in some cases, increases. Now, I, I don't understand. I thought that ozone was something that was, I don't know, produced in the upper atmosphere by sunlight, you know, hitting, hitting oxygen molecules up there. Uh, how does that go up just because of what we're doing here on our on our highways? Yeah, so ozone is, uh, and you are correct, ozone is something that is produced in the atmosphere. So there is no source that would directly emit ozone, right? Ozone is formed from the chemistry in the presence of sunlight, in the presence of nitrogen oxide. There's one more important ingredient that is needed for ozone production. It's called VOC, which is volatile organic compounds. And these are the gas compounds that is emitted by, you know, cars, by trucks, or by trees. So in order to make ozone, you need three of these together. And depending on which one is the limiting, you know, component, reducing one thing can have a different effect, you know, on the ozone. So that's why it makes the ozone formation so interesting and nonlinear, because, you know, you do the same thing in different places. You can get very different change in the ozone, you know, concentration. So there's essentially a big chemistry experiment being run now, <laughs> thanks to the uh, the shutdowns and the reduction in activity by uh, by the populace. But what are the practical consequences of this? I mean, has this changed the uh, the incidence of I don't know respiratory disease or something? Yeah, so I'm sure there will be many studies, you know, coming out as part of this shutdown to see how you know the. The reduction in many of these emissions will be, you know, associated with perhaps reductions in a lot of these cardiovascular and respiratory, you know, diseases. Okay, but we don't know yet. Yeah, like even if you ask me, you know, like, like I can say that, you know, the nitrogen oxide decreasing, um, but you know, in Atlanta, the ozone and particulate matter is still pretty high. So you know, like we're still we're still actually measuring. Let Let's talk about how this influences something that, in fact, in the end, influences policy, and that is climate models, pollution models, where they try and figure out, okay, you know, if you implemented this reduction in tailpipe emissions of trucks or something like that, that this would be the resultant change in the atmosphere. But people who don't like regulation might say, look, those are computer models. They're not reliable. Does this give you some sort of ground truth for those models? Yeah, so this will be like a really nice test for the models, right? Because then you can have a model scenario of before, and now you can actually compare to this real life experiment and see if your results from the model actually match the measurement. And whether it match or not, we can still learn something. If it match, then we need to ask ourselves, you know, are we getting the right answer for the right reasons? If they don't match, then now is also another learning opportunity to see, you know, what is wrong in the model? Can we do better based on all these measurements that we are doing? So, you know, either way, there are a lot of information that we can learn. So Sally, if your next door neighbors say, okay, all of that you know, sounds sort of interesting, but it doesn't affect me at all. What would you say to them? I always think of air pollution as a silent killer because sometimes, you I mean, like we don't see these nanoparticles or, you know, particularly matter ozone and nitrogen oxide in front of our faces, right? But the, the bottom line is that everybody breathes. You can, as long as you live, you breathe, right? So as long as you breathe, you're breathing in all these pollutants. So it's kind of hard to say that it does not affect them because as long as they are breathing, they are breathing in these pollutants. So it's really important to, you know, understand how these pollutants are formed and, and try to mitigate their formation so we can, you know, save lives. 
I kind of wonder, I mean, looking at these photos of how clear the air is, uh, seeing the word crystalline being used to describe atmospheric conditions, you know, it's like going back to the, I don't know, the 18th century or something, when the air was a lot clearer. Do you think that this will actually get to the point where people will say, you know, I really liked it better when the air was clear. This is a great demonstration. This is one of the few upsides, perhaps, of the pandemic. Do you think it will lead to any sort of permanent change? Yeah, I hope so. You know, like the trouble is that, you know, as soon as the economy reopens, you can see very quickly all these pollutants will just, you know, come back, right? But the hope is that, you know, once you experience clean air, the first time, maybe in a long time, then you you really appreciate that it is such a good thing to have clean air, and maybe that will make some change, you know, socially. Sally Ng, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Yeah, it's very nice talking to you. Sally Ng is an atmospheric scientist and chemical engineer at Georgia Tech. Well, perhaps one of our greatest concerns about what's in the air these days is whether it has coronavirus wafting through it. And Seth, I understand that chemical engineers may have found a way to help us with that concern. Well, indeed. And they're taking advantage of a, of a certain kind of fabric, a certain kind of fabric that is lethal to uh, microorganisms. It's called electroceutical fabric. Okay, so this is fabric other than what I'm wearing right now, this, this nylon top. I, yes, that might keep a few, I don't know, viruses from going through to your skin, but it doesn't do anything to them. It doesn't kill them, right? But this fabric really does zap them, and it zaps them with a little bit of electricity. So this is really quite an interesting effect, and it was already known the FDA had approved fabric like this uh, against bacterial infection. It's called electroceutical fabric. So when the pandemic hit, Dr. Shandan Sen, who is a professor in the Department of Surgery in the Indiana University School of Medicine, well, he had this inspiration. Why not use this fabric for face masks? We were up to finding a fabric which, when it is in contact with a virus, the virus is neutralized, meaning the virus cannot infect anymore. So not only do you keep the virus away, but you are taking away its ability to infect. Okay, so an ordinary mask uh, of the kind that I can buy, they work the way a kitchen colander does, or better than that, they work the way the screens on my windows work. The flies can't get through the screen. It's a simple trap, if you will. But what you're saying is that in the case of the virus, the flies are sticking to the screen and then they could infect you when you put on or take off the mask. So your scheme deactivates the virus. It just sort of, it makes them non-infectious. Is that the deal? Yes, it neutralizes the infectivity of the virus. So viruses cannot multiply on their own. In order to multiply, they need to enter into the host cell. So the idea here is once those viral particles are in touch with this fabric, that they are neutralized, meaning they cannot enter a host cell and multiply you know, having the virus in the air in a public place is more likely than it was, say, several months ago. And with this uh, number of people getting more and more infected, uh, this would be very important not only to keep the virus away from our uh, in air passage, but also to neutralize it. Okay, so this mask has special properties and uh, that can actually deactivate the virus. Uh, it's called an electroceutical fabric. But, you know, what, what is that other than a hard-to-pronounce Greek name? <laughs> so uh, we are all used to pharmaceutical, and the basis of pharmaceutical intervention or therapy is that these are medical drugs that we take. Now, in this case, you don't have a drug. You don't have a chemical. You are using a physical force, which is electric field. And this electric field is so weak that it does not hurt the human, but it is high enough in power to disrupt the electrokinetic properties of the viral particles. So the viral particle in this case, the coronavirus, has a electrokinetic property. The moment it comes in contact with this fabric, that electrokinetic property is disrupted, 
and making rendering the virus not able to infect anymore. My understanding is that the mask is, uh, you know, it's it's got some sort of fabric there, some polyester, but that it's laced with two different metals. And in the presence of a, some sort of salty liquid, I mean, everybody remembers what they did in fifth grade where they took a lemon or whatever and they, they stuck a couple of metals into it and they got a battery. So is that the way this works? It's just sort of a mask battery? Yeah, so the fabric has been pre-existing for about 10 years now and it, it is currently used for wound care dressing. And the principles of this fabric is that uh, you have these so-called polka dot type dots of silver and zinc that are spotted onto the fabric. And they're spotted in a particular geometric pattern such that when wet in the presence of a electrolyte containing liquid, which can be any bodily fluid or even tap water, it will turn on its so-called battery. This is not the type of battery as we know. There is no other battery except that you have this polka dots and you cannot even feel the metal with your uh, bare fingers. But when it is now wet, the so-called battery turns on and that is enough to zap the virus such that it cannot infect anymore. Well, that's really quite interesting that such a weak electric field. I mean, the Earth has an electric field, doesn't it? And I, I don't see a pile of bacteria accumulating here in my, uh, my den. Why is it that this field actually zaps them? So the virus is, say, several centimeters away. They would not be zapped. But if they're in touch with the fabric, then the nature of the electrical forces that you have on this fabric, on the surface of this fabric, neutralizes the virus. So we clearly have seen, through scientific measurements, uh, being in touch only for one minute of this particular fabric, the coronavirus structure changes. And then if you take the virus away from the fabric, so you don't keep it on the fabric, take it away from the fabric, and now put it on a cell that is ideally suited uh, for the virus to infect it, now these cells cannot be infected and those cells would not die. Can you wash this mask? Is it reusable or is it used once, throw away? The, the testing of the material has shown that up to uh, 10 washes or so, it retains its electrical properties. And, and is it intended for the general public? Or, uh, you know, if you manufacture these things, and I presume somebody's going to manufacture them, uh, they would be used only in hospitals? I mean, what, what's the market? Now, currently it is being manufactured in industrial scale in Arizona. And at this time, uh, we have had a meeting with the FDA. As you can imagine, FDA is getting requests for a lot of emergency use authorization applications. And they are now sent back some questions. We are now responding to those questions. And we hope through due process, this would be you know, approved. Once approved, the idea is not necessarily to limit this to only hospital folks, but to people in general, as long as we can keep the cost down. So the idea would be as many people can benefit, the better. Shantin Sen, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. Thank you for having me. Shandan Sen, professor in the Department of Surgery at the Indiana University School of Medicine, talking about masks benefiting from the special properties of electroceutical fabric. I liked your question about comparing this to the effect that the Earth's electric field might have on bacteria on our planet. As you said, they're not piling up in your den. And his answer to that seemed to suggest the role that proximity plays to the field. The amount of energy that an electric field can put into something like a bacterium or a virus depends on the strength and the distance, right? If it's, it's a high strength, but over a large distance, then, you know, over a, a thousandth of a millimeter won't do much. But if the strength is, yeah, a, a couple of volts over a very small distance, it, it's like getting toasted by a lightning bolt that's only, you know, a, a, an eighth of an inch long. And now we have an insight into how you make toast. Wow. So you probably don't make toast very often if you're waiting for a lightning bolt to turn that bread brown. No, and I don't really do it with electric fields. But... <laughs> if I was trying to make toast out of a virus, maybe, maybe. You do it with air thousands of times a day, but even with all that practice, you're probably not doing it right. The main thing that we get wrong is we think more air is better, but it's not. 
the more you breathe, the less you're going to be getting of that essential oxygen. And this is such a contrarian thing that so many people get it wrong. Next, the ins and outs of proper respiration and why snoring may be a recent evolutionary development. It's something in the air on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We've been talking about the quality of our air. Now, how efficiently our bodies make use of it. Take a breath in. All right, now exhale. Simple enough, right? Except that most people breathe incorrectly, according to journalist James Nestor. That means about 25,000 times a day, we're getting it wrong. That's what Mr. Nestor reports in his book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. He describes some recent evolutionary changes that have made humans less efficient breathers. But we have some incentive to improve. Here, he reads a passage. Breathing, as it happens, is more than just a biochemical or physical act. It's more than just moving the diaphragm downward and sucking in air to feed hungry cells and remove waste. The tens of billions of molecules we bring into our bodies with every breath also serve a more subtle but equally important role. They influence nearly every internal organ, telling them when to turn on and when to turn off. They affect heart rate, digestion, moods, attitudes, when we feel aroused and when we feel nauseated. Breathing is a power switch to a vast network called the autonomic nervous system. His new book is eerily timed as we're now consciously aware of our own breathing and whether others are breathing on us during this pandemic of respiratory illness. Also, Anxiety during this time is leading to tighter chests and shallower breathing, which increases anxiety. But how can we change the quality of our breathing? Now, well, let's take it from the top and follow the air that we inhale. We inhale more molecules than there are all the grains on all the world's beaches. So what happens when we're breathing through our nose is all of those molecules enter into our sinuses. They follow down our throats. They enter into our lungs and our lungs move them into our bloodstream, into red blood cells, hemoglobin, which is then delivered like fuel into all of our cells in our body. So this process, so many people don't really realize how complex it is and how the ways in which we breathe, the ways in which we, we foster this process really affects us physically, mentally, and in so many other ways. I heard this from one researcher, and this number seemed uh, very excessive to me, but then he started breaking down all the different populations that have problems breathing. He said about 80% of the population is breathing inadequately. Now that's a fuzzy term, I realize. What does inadequately mean? Maybe they're breathing too much. Maybe some people are breathing too little. Maybe they have chronic breathing problems, just like COPD or emphysema or asthma again, you know, they snore, have sleep apnea. But you, when you start looking at it as, as a species, we've really lost touch with our most basic biological function. I wonder if you could say more about that, um, about what it is that most of us get wrong when we breathe, because of course, breathing is as natural as breathing. So the main thing that we get wrong is we think more air is better, but it's not. The more you breathe, the less you're going to be getting of that essential oxygen. And this is such a contrarian 
thing that so many people get it wrong. I certainly got it wrong. So if you go to the gym or you see people out jogging around and they're just breathing as hard as they can, when you're breathing above your metabolic needs, you're overworking your body, just like really revving your your motor of your car at a stop sign. And after a while, that's going to have a lot of wear and tear on the body. So ultimately, what you want to be doing is breathing as closely in line with your metabolic needs as you possibly can. And for the vast majority, I've found that that means breathing less and breathing a lot slower than you're used to. And also breathing through our nose um, more than our mouth. I, I have to confess, it wasn't until I read your book that I stop to think whether or not I was a mouth breather or a nose breather, but now I'm very self-conscious about it. Uh, Is it possible I could be a little bit of both? How can we figure out if we're a mouth breather or a nose breather? We're all a little bit of both. And and that's a point I wanted to make, you know, very clear is you're not going to immediately kill yourself breathing out of your mouth, right? We, we have that channel to breathe for a reason because it's a great backup system. But we also have a nose for a reason. I had many conversations with the chief of rhinology research at Stanford, Jayakar Nayak, and he told me we have the most fantastic, ornate, complex organ in the front of our faces and few people ever consider what it does and how it can benefit us. So by breathing through the nose, You're conditioning air, you're heating it, you're moistening it, you are removing pathogens, and most importantly, you're slowing it down and you're creating pressure in your lungs so your lungs will be better able to extract oxygen. You participated in a unique experiment Mm -hmm. at Stanford University in which you had your nose plugged for a week and a half or so. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us what was being tested? And did you get to take any breaks where you got to pull the plugs out every now and then? Or were they in there firm for the entire time? Zero breaks. We, we took none. So the Stanford experiment was basically a informal test on how mouth breathing and nasal breathing affect sleep, fatigue, and general performance. So you stuck these... Uh, plugs in your nose. Um, And by the description in your book, you were miserable. Just describe it for us what that week and a half was like. Well, it was like having chronic congestion for for 10 days, which which again is something that's so common in in our society right now. So when you when your nose is plugged up, you obviously you can only breathe through your mouth. So your mouth is just slightly open and you're just exposed to everything around, uh, constantly drinking water, constantly feeling anxious. My blood pressure went through the roof within the first 12 hours of mouth breathing, you know, went up about 15, 17 points, um, just, just by switching that, that channel from nasal breathing to mouth breathing. A, a bug, a bacterium made its home in your nose. Yeah, yeah, that that happened, which is also very common because the the less you use your nose, the less you can use it. And so chronic sinusitis, there's a reason why pe- why it's called chronic. <laughs> People can keep getting these problems because uh you know, a lot of them are habitual mouth breathers. I don't know a percentage on that, but a significant number are. Um the most significant thing that we found right off the bat by mouth breathing is both uh, me and another breathing therapist I'm not a breathing therapist, but he is from Sweden, went from not snoring and not having sleep apnea. The first night we started snoring. Within a few nights, we started snoring even more and having sleep apnea. Within a few nights after that, I was snoring through half the night and so was he. So just to to learn about how the ways in which we breathe affect these two chronic problems, snoring and sleep apnea, I just thought was was fascinating. The most wonderful thing about this experiment was to live life on the other side, right? To, to take out these plugs, to take off this tape that was around our nostrils and to just breathe through our nose. So for the other 10 days, we breathe through our nose as often as we could. And snoring went away, sleep apnea went away, blood pressure dropped, performance increased. I mean, the whole laundry list of improvements that were not subtle. These were significant improvements and they were measurable. Can you say more about that? I mean, what is it about nose breathing that's better, uh, preferable to mouth breathing? What is it that's in our nose that's not in our mouth? 
we have in our nose we have turbinates so if you if you took a human nose and you sliced it in half it would look just like a seashell that's where it gets its name nasal concha so shells use that very that maze like calcification all, all of that shell swirls around so it can protect the animal inside from pathogens and other invaders. Our noses do the same thing, but it also has erectile tissue, which is covered with mucosa. And all of these things with cilia, all of these hair-like structures, help trap pathogens and particulate and filter that air before it it comes into our bodies. So this is a very, very sophisticated system. You passed over something and you know what I'm coming back to because this was quite curious. Uh, the nose has erectile tissue. Is this the same kind of tissue that we find in our genitals? And if so, <laughs> what is the connection? What's its usefulness in the nose? So our noses are, are more closely connected to our genitals than, than any other organ. So when, when one gets activated, the other can, can respond, sometimes in very significant ways. I had mentioned this uh, to a few people before. They didn't believe it, but the science is clear. There's, if you look at something called honeymoon rhinitis, that is caused by someone getting sexually excited, having the nose respond so powerfully that they just start sneezing constantly because that there is inflammation that occurs that erectile tissue in our nose engorges just like that tissue you know where engorges in the same way so for so long scientists didn't know why our noses did this and they found something else too that throughout the day about a hundred years ago they found that one nostril will open while the other softly closes that erectile tissue engorges with blood on one side and then opens on the other dilates the other nostril like back like back and forth right to left left to right and on and on when we're sick the cycle increases the the amount of time it takes to cycle really increases but throughout the day every 30 minutes to about three or four hours you're going to have one nostril that's more dominant than the other because of that erectile tissue engorging with blood. It turns out that we used to be better breathers than we are now and that there's an evolutionary reason why we were better breathers up to 400 years ago. And 400 years ago in, in the evolutionary time scale is not a long time. Yeah, and this was just a, a very bizarre tangent that I did not expect I would be going into writing a book about breathing. I had no idea this, this existed. So what has happened in the blink of an eye, considering our evolution, is because of industrialized foods, vitamins and minerals have a little to do with it, but it mostly has to do with lack of chewing stress. We have not been working out. We used to chew for four hours a day. If you think about industrialized foods now, flour, bread, yogurt, <laughs> oatmeal, all this stuff is soft. And without that masticatory stress, your muscles don't develop properly and your bones don't develop properly. First thing that happens is your teeth grow in crooked. And another thing that happens is that mouth that is too small for its face that has crooked teeth, also there's a good chance its airway has shrunken up. So we have a smaller airway because of it. And this is one of the reasons why 50% of the population snores, one of the reasons why a quarter of the population has sleep apnea, why so many of us have chronic breathing problems. It is an anatomical problem. During this pandemic, we have become uh, quite conscious about how we're breathing. Uh, we're also learning more about how to treat COVID patients who have breathing problems. And um, one thing that doctors have been doing is putting COVID patients on their sides or their stomach and not on their backs in order to improve their, their breathing. What's the reasoning behind that, James? Well, if you take a big, deep breath in, that lung expansion, so much of it is occurring in your back. There's a little bit that happens in your chest, but most of it's occurring in your back. So to lie someone on their back, they're gonna have a harder time to breathe, and that's just basic physics there. So this idea of proning by laying patients on their sides or on their stomachs allows them to breathe and to purge that gunk out of their lungs so much more easily. Well, well, finally, is there anything else that you think we should keep in mind during this time of being very 
breathing conscious for many reasons, not only because there's a, a pandemic that is a, a respiratory illness, but we have a lot of anxiety. Yeah? You know, our chests are, are tighter, our breathing is probably more shallow. Um, any words, any, any advice for, for the public on their, on their breathing? For, for both of those conditions, both living in a pandemic and having anxiety and being anxious, breathing through the nose and breathing slowly is essential. And one other thing I want to mention about nasal breathing, since this is a science show, I can probably get away with mentioning this. Um, our nose produces this huge perfusion of nitric oxide, which is this wonderful molecule that helps with vasodilation and, and gas exchange and so many other things. Uh, it turns out that they're now testing uh, nitric oxide with patients with, with COVID, uh, but we produce our own nitric oxide right up top of our faces in our noses. And so by breathing slowly, you're going to be introducing more nitric oxide in, into your body, which also helps fight off, guess what, viruses. So um, this is just being explored now. And I think it's fascinating that we found all these hacks to do what our bodies have naturally been designed to do for so long. James Nestor, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. James Nestor is the author of Breath, the new science of a lost art. So the big picture here from my point of view is that we're talking about the air and nobody ever talks about the air. It's all around us. It's invisible, all that stuff. But, you know, when Sally Ng talked about a soup, I never thought about what I'm breathing here as a soup, but I guess she's right. And it occurs to me that we don't think about the air or about breathing unless something goes wrong. So we think about the air when tiny bits of microplastic fall out of it, or when the air suddenly is much cleaner than it was, or when we have problems breathing. Okay, you may have this memorized. Actually, I kind of hope you have. But if you come across questionable cures, claims, or data about the pandemic, check the facts. These are available at your local public health service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. A big thanks to the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky David and Sammy David and the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the atmospheres of our planet and of others. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and also a big thanks to our listeners. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Something in the Air. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.